0: Thanks for joining us for tonight's webinar. My name is Alexi Lavecchio, and I'm the National Forest Organizer with KS Wild. Also with me here from KS Wild is Brodia Minter, our Conservation Associate. She will be helping with today's webinar and also monitoring questions in the Q&A box. And we also have Joseph Vale with us here who will be today's moderator. And yeah, we're super excited to continue the Fire Climate Summit webinar series with our second webinar on climate smart conservation. We're so grateful for you all being here with us tonight. And so just a brief and quick overview of tonight's program. We have three panelists, and we will hold a Q&A session at the end of the presentations where we will answer as many questions as we have time for. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Joseph Bale, who is moderating tonight's presentation.
1: Thank you, Alexi. My name is Joseph Vail, and I am the Climate Program Director here at KS Wild. First of all, I want to thank all the people and organizations that collaborated to make this webinar possible. The Fire and Climate Summit was developed alongside the Lomakatsi Restoration Project, SOCAN, the Jackson County Fuel Committee, Red Earth Descendants, Southern Oregon Land Conservancy, Vesper Meadow, Fairbanks Forest Management, and many partners with land management agencies. We all share uh, an interest in providing this forum to discuss these important topics. So where I work at KS Wild, we have the great pleasure and deep responsibility of working to protect biodiversity in one of the most spectacular places on earth, the Klamath Eco ecoregion knowing that climate change is a grave threat to our mission and that we are entering an area where wildfire will become more prevalent. We began a dialogue with our partners to develop this forum and to discuss the intersection of climate change, wildfires, and our human and natural communities. Immediately, we knew that a discussion of climate adaptation in our region was critically important. We need to understand what the climate will look like in the future if we're gonna protect biodiversity in this region. As we will learn tonight, climate smart conservation incorporates the projected climate in a given place into our decisions about how we protect and manage rivers and forests and protect critical habitats for plants and wildlife. Climate smart also means being flexible and adapting as we learn more about the impacts of climate change. And we have assembled some of the leading experts to, that are beginning to inform that discussion about how climate smart management and our region can be carried out today. So without further ado, I want to introduce our first panelists. Ellen Journay taught biology and environmental science for 30 years at Southeast Missouri State University. After relocating to Southern Oregon with his wife Kathy Conway, Alan and Kathy established Southern Oregon Climate Action Now, of which he serves as co-facilitator. Alan is going to tell us what climate we can expect in the coming years here in Southern Oregon and Northern California. Thank you, Alan.
2: Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to uh, to the broadcast. As you can see, my charge is to talk about climate history and projections for this region, Southern California. Towards the end, I'm going to talk a little about how that might be impacting uh, forest tree associations. And then I'll say a few words right at the end about how Climate Smart uh, deals with some of these issues. So let me start by looking at uh, what the condition was like 18, 20,000 years ago when we were at the depth. So, what's the height of the last ice age? What you can see is the ice sheet covered much of North America down to the Missouri River in the heartland. And as you can see over on the left, we here were not inundated by ice. But the key point to be demonstrated here is that as the ice came down the country, what that did was essentially squidge up or squidge down the various biomes natural systems in North America. So back in 18, 20,000 years ago, the biomes were squidged south. Then we come to a current condition, and what you can see clearly, the ice has receded substantially. But uh, as that has receded, so the biomes, the natural systems, have um, ex- exhibited rain shifts north. Now, over eighteen to 20,000 years, that's quite possible. Biological systems have capacity to to exhibit those kinds of rain shifts. The difficulty we have, as we're going to see in a few minutes, is that the projections suggest that we're going to be doing climatically what has taken 18, 20,000 years to happen, but we're in danger of doing that over a period of about 100 years. The other issue, from a climatic point of view, which is very critical to understand the local system, is that we live in a, uh, an area which exhibits this rather unusual precipitation pattern. Uh, most people who live here know quite well that we live in a winter, wet, summer dry climate. It's obviously also winter, cool, summer, hot climate. The point is that that is called a Mediterranean climate. It is very different from anything else that happens in North America. We can see Louisiana, Colorado, and New York, for example. Nowhere else has this profound winter, wet, summer, dry condition. This climate is called a Mediterranean climate. It's uh, present in six places across the planet. The European Mediterranean area, duh, is one of them. In Australia, there are two locations, one in southwestern Australia and the other in south to southeastern Australia. If we go to South Africa, it's... uh, Uh, The Mediterranean climate called the finboss is on the western side around Cape Town. In uh, South America, it's on the west coast and of course right here, it's on the west coast as well. Historically, what that has done has uh, impacted our biological systems quite profoundly. Every summer during the late summer period, the soils and the vegetation dry out. The consequence of that is fire risk increases. In this particular part of the the country, uh, our drier forests uh, are recorded to have experienced fire frequency as much as once every less than a decade. The consequence of all of that is that the surviving vegetation, and this is true for wherever you go on the planet in those six areas, the surviving vegetation is fire-prone, fire-adapted, and fire-dependent. And that is critical because if we want to, if we were successful, for example, at suppressing or extinguishing every fire in this region, what we would be doing is imposing a climatic, um, an environmental impact on us, which would basically destroy the forests. If we look at at, uh, historical patterns of fire, as uh, revealed by the Oregon Department of Forestry, History from 1911 to 2017 over the uh, 16 million or so acres that have been uh, that are under the uh, fire control of the Oregon Department of Forestry, what we see is a series of trends. The first trend, which is interesting, is that the 10-year trend in the number of fire initiations it's shown some variability, but it really hasn't shown any profound pattern. On the other hand, if we look at the acres burned, this is now the orange bars and the sort of red line, what we can see is if we go back to the beginning of the last century, that the uh, area burned is uh, is quite frequently huge. And that's even compared to the kind of uh, pattern that we've seen in this area over the last few years. So the question to ask is what's going on? One of the uh, phenomena that's uh, worth looking at is what's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is a a large uh, climatic um, pattern which occurs in the Pacific Ocean. And it causes uh, areas such as where we live in Western North America, a series of phases. So if we go back to the beginning of the last century, we were in a cool phase and that transitioned in the early 1920s into a warm phase, About 1944, that then transitioned back into a cool phase, which occurred uh, up until somewhere around the middle 1970s, and it was 1977, and from 1970s onward, we went back into a Pacific decadal warm phase, but also from about that period of time, global warming started to kick in, and if you'll pardon the expression, pretty much trumped the Pacific decadal oscillation in terms of its impact. The other thing that's been going on in this area throughout this time is, from the last, from the about the 1920s or so, there's been efforts to suppress fires, and that was particularly uh, critical when the famous Smokey Bear campaign was uh, initiated in 1944, and what that did was make fire suppression a really successful tactic or strategy. And, and you can see that happened almost about the same time that the Pacific Decadal Oscillation switched from its warm phase to its cool phase. So it's very difficult to be absolutely certain which of these is the dominant factor influencing the area that's under the impact of, uh, under control of the Orange Department of Forestry according to these data. Fortunately, Bill Kuhn, from whom you will hear uh, in a while, shared with me some data that he's compiled, which deal with the annual area burned in southwestern Oregon over the period 1910 to 2018 uh, in Oregon Department of Forestry, Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest Service Land. And a few patterns are really critical to note here. One is we can see a significant trend in terms of the area burned, the orange bars, largely impacted by recent patterns. We can also see that there is neither a, a strong correlation between the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and the Palmer Drought Severity Index. That's the uh, the blue lines represent the the BDSI or the acres burned. In fact, when we look at this, we, what we see is the drought periods. The blue bars going upwards are are occurring in both the cool phases and the warm phases almost to the same extent. And so when we look at this, the suggestion that this seems to make is that in this particular part of the country, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation was not having as much an impact as it might have been having elsewhere. Let's look now at some historical patterns. I'm going to start with where we live here inland, North Carolina, Northern California, and Southern Oregon. We'll look at the Siskiyou County and Jackson County. These data come from NOAA. What we can see is in both locations, a very consistent rising temperature at the rate of 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit per decade with about a 48 to 49 degree average over the century, the last century. If we look now at uh, coastal Northern California, Southern Oregon, what we find is the temperature has been rising at the same rate, but the average temperature over the last century, uh, the, the 20th century, was 50 degrees Fahrenheit, a little higher than where we are here. If we go the other direction, let's go to Harney and Modoc counties, respectively, in Southern Oregon and Northern California, what we find interestingly is the warming rate during that period was higher than here and at the coast, but the average temperature during the last century was actually a little cooler. Let's have a quick look now at Jackson uh, County. Uh, the July and August trends. And what we can see is the warming over July and August has been occurring at pretty much the same rate. In fact, it's been going up at about 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit per decade, um, and of course, the average for the last century is warmer, because this is during summer. What this is suggesting is we've been getting increased drying out and increased risk of fires spreading once initiated. Let's go to the future now and look at what the U.S. Geological Survey projections suggest comparing to a 1981 to 2010 baseline. What we're looking at here are the annual mean maximum and minimum temperatures for Jackson County. The black line represents the historical. The red line represents what's called the uh, representative concentration pathway 8.5, which essentially means continuing what we call business as usual. The accelerating rate of greenhouse gas emissions due to accelerating fossil fuel use. The blue line suggests what would happen if we are smarter than that and we don't show exactly quite an accelerating rate of increase in, in emissions. What we can see is over this period of time, the temperature rise is some eight degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. If we look at Siskiyou, County In Northern California, it's pretty much exactly the same trend. If we go to the coast, the warming rate is a bit lower, by the end of the century, only about 7 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the business as usual scenario, the RCP 8.5 scenario. On the other hand, if we go inland, we find that the temperature by the end of the century, again, according to RCP 8.5 business as usual, likely to be up over 10 degrees warmer than that 1981-2010 baseline. So we're looking at temperatures that are going to be rising substantially. If we ask about precipitation, we can see that uh, projections suggest over the course of the century, on average little change in precipitation, but there are some patterns. Increasing variability with wetter years being wetter and drier years possibly being drier. Increased seasonality with wetter winters and drier summers, reducing snowpack, decreased soil and vegetation moisture, and the consequence for increased risk of fire spreading once initiated. Let's talk a little about the climate consequences for forest viability. Jessica Ilowski, from whom you will be hearing again shortly, Suggested with colleagues a number of patterns, and these really refer to climatic trends. What they have suggested is that, for, according to climatic trends, the suitability of the area for alpine forests is going to be contracting. The same for subalpine forests. There will be climate shifts such that montane forests are likely to become more seric, evergreen and oak woodland vegetation. Climatic shifts from dry forests to more xeric, evergreen forests and oak woodland vegetation. Climatic shifts to more area bone possibly in oak woodlands. Increased summer drought with water stress for the chaparral. Ditto for grasslands with possibly invasion of non-native annual grasses. Other reports, particularly the Oregon Climate Change Institute's climate assessment reports from 2010 and 2013, suggest essentially the same trends that uh, Jessica and colleagues uh, reported above. They're largely consistent, some are a little more extreme. But, and here's the interesting point, another array of studies were developed by Jerry Rayfold from the U.S. Agriculture Forest Service in Idaho. Looking at Douglas fir conditions, what he has, his uh, group suggested was, between now and 2090, as consistent with the previous reports, Douglas conditions for Douglas fir are likely to decrease substantially. But what's interesting is their studies also suggest that the conditions appropriate for Ponderosa pine are likely to s- decrease substantially. Uh, I was curious about this and so I also looked at this, their projections for the uh, Gary Oak and they suggest also that for the Gary Oak, that the area of maximum viability is likely to decrease. Indeed, what they suggested is that the climatic conditions for the Lodgepole Pine will be such that Oregon will be out of the range of Lodgepole Pine by the end of the century. The key idea here is we can't be sure exactly what species the future climatic conditions will support and where those tree species will be supported. Which brings us to the idea of climate smart and I'll just say a few quick words about that. The overall principles behind climate smart um, management are firstly, restoration to prior conditions is not a reasonable goal. And That's because when we look at future conditions, uh, 2050, 2100 compared to 1900 and 1950, what we can see is climatic conditions are going to be very different. So the idea that in the future we would, would likely see the same species in the same places that we saw them 50 to 100 years ago is unreasonable. Rather, what we have to do is emphasize an active management for climate change not just protecting, restoring, or resisting climate change. Let me run through this cycle very quickly. We start off by defining our planning purpose and scope. We assess the vulnerabilities of various segments and components of the system that we're working with. We look at our conservation goals and objectives. We revise, reassess our vulnerabilities, and this is a c- critical component in climate smart management. Constantly reviewing and revising what you're doing, looking at what the outcome of your activities are. We then look at uh, adaptation uh, options, adaptation actions, and then we get into implementations. And a good point to make here is that rather than focusing on one uh, strategy. Within Climate Smart, the idea is to think of an array of strategies and experiment implementing different strategies, tracking the effectiveness of those strategies and the ecological responses, and adjusting as needed. So this idea of reviewing and revising is a critical component, but also constantly monitoring what the impacts are of the strategies we're imposing on the system. And then we go back to... uh, the beginning of the cycle, re- re- reviewing the purpose and scope of our actions. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much. Um, and just going to keep moving along here. I do want to remind everyone quickly that if you uh, have a question, please use the Q&A box. The chat, di- the chat box has been disabled, but um, if you have any issues, uh, you can uh, put them in the QA box and we'll try to attend to those, um, but please uh, keep the questions coming. We've already got some really great ones. Um, Our second presenter tonight is Dr. Jessica Holofsky. Dr. Holofsky's research is focused on assessing the effects of climate change on forests using both modeling and field-based approaches. Jessica facilitates climate change vulnerability assessments and adaptation plans for national forests across the Western United States. Given what we just learned about our projected climate here in this region, Dr. Holofsky is going to tell us a bit more about what we can expect to happen to the landscapes in the Klamath
0: Siskiyou. Great, thanks very much, Joseph. And I can start my slideshow, uh, if Alan can just stop sharing his. Great, thank you. all right great so yeah i'm going to focus on effects of climate change and ecosystems and alan just showed this figure um, with these climate smart principles and i'll point out uh, again number two has to do with assessing climate change vulnerabilities and uh, number four is looking more at possible adaptation actions and so I wanted to point out that there was an assessment done for Southwest Oregon, and I helped to lead. Um, it was a science management partnership with the Forest Service, the Rogue River siskiyou and Umpqua National Forests, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, the Roseburg and Medford Districts, and also Oregon Caves National Monument and Preserve. And so through this effort, uh, a science-based vulnerability assessment was developed uh, for all these federal lands. And it covered multiple resources, uh, including hydrology, fisheries, vegetation, wildlife, and then uh, ecosystem services. And so this uh, technical report is in press, so it will be published through the Forest Service Pacific Northwest Research Station, um, but it is available at this website um, for you to download at this point. So I'm going to give some highlights from this that are focused mostly on vegetation and fire um, but I did want to point out that there's, this is a hundred, hundreds of pages long, there's a lot of detail in there, um, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all tonight, unfortunately. All right, so to get an idea of how climate change is going to affect vegetation and fire, there are a number of different sources of information we can look at. And one of them is the paleoecological record. And so this, we're primarily talking about uh, lake sediments. So we can take cores, scientists take cores out of lakes and look at sediments over time and specifically look at pollen and charcoal and get an idea of what the vegetation composition and also fire regime was like in, uh, surrounding the lake um, over, and these can go back tens of thousands of years. Uh, We can look at tree ring records over hundreds of years to get an idea of what fire regimes and tree growth have been like over time. Uh, Another thing we can do is look at how things have changed recently with warming, especially over the last 20 or 30 years, there has been quite a bit of warming and changes in vegetation and disturbances. And then to look at the future, we can uh, look at model projections. So I'm gonna be giving examples of all these uh, different types of evidence. So, starting with the paleoecological record, so this is a pollen and charcoal record. This was from um, Bolin Lake in the Siskiyou. And so, this is a, a little bit complicated, but but I want what I want you to get out of this figure is that individual plant species respond differently to changes in climate over time. So we don't have communities of plants moving around the landscape, and that the fire regime and species composition of our forests have been very tightly coupled with climate over time and so we expect that to to hold in the future um, so a couple of things that this shows is that you know there are were, there were periods warmer and drier periods in the past in the Siskiyou, and overall during that time those, those warmer drier periods we had more fire And we had different species composition. We had species that were more tolerant of drought and fire. So that included uh, Douglas fir, more pines, oaks, and chaparral species. We also know that looking at tree ring records that fire and climate have been very closely related in the past in in our region. And that there there was more fire when we had warm and dry spring conditions in the past, so greater area burned. We also know that tree growth has has varied with with those changes of climate and so looking forward uh, how tree growth will be affected by climate change really depends on where you are on the landscape, where a tree is on the landscape. So at our higher elevation sites, those those sites are usually limited by snow and a shorter growing season. Um, But in the future, when they're warmer, we might have increased growth of those trees um, with warmer and drier conditions. And you look at the other end of the spectrum in our more water-limited, low-elevation forests, they're limited by water in the summer. And so warmer and drier conditions are going to further limit their growth. We have another factor in there, which is increased carbon dioxide concentrations in our atmosphere, which could actually result in a fertilization effect on some vegetation. It could increase uh, biomass and growth. Um, But then there's also the drought factor, and the the stress from drought could negate some of those increases from increased carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. All right, moving on to some patterns we've seen with with climate change over the, over the last 50 years or so. Um, this is a study uh, done by Harrison and others that looked at herbaceous communities in the Siskiyou. And they looked at some, a set of plots that were set up in 1950 by Robert Whittaker, who's a famous ecologist. And they looked at how those those herbaceous communities have changed between 1950 and 2007. So they looked in a couple of different places, uh, some relatively high elevation forests that had never been logged before, the upper montane primary. Uh, They looked at lower elevation forests that hadn't been logged. And then they looked at lower montane forests that had been logged before. And what they saw was that there weren't as many changes in those upper montane forests but they saw a shift in the, in the lower montane forest, whether or not they had logged before. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they saw that those, the species composition shifted towards species that had lower specific leaf areas. So they had short, they had smaller, thicker leaves. And that's an adaptation that helps the species uh, basically tolerate drought. And they also saw a decrease in cover of more northern species. So they saw shifts in composition towards species that were more drought, they're more tolerant of warm and dry conditions. So the the composition shifted more towards something that you would expect on our hotter and drier south facing slopes. And this could be the reason why we've seen that drought has increased um, pretty substantially This is a look at the cumulative drought severity index for the period of 1960 to 1986 on the left compared to 1987 to 2011 on the right. So what we've seen with our our increases in, in drought and warmer and drier conditions over the past few years, And this is a satellite image from uh, the end of August in 2015. (coughs) Excuse me. And you can see there was a lot of fire over our region at that time. And as our temperatures increase, we're expecting more water to evaporate from the landscape and from plant tissues. This is creating a larger area of low fuel moisture and can result in this regional synchronization of fires. And scientists think that that 2015 year was maybe a harbinger of things to come. So in that year, we had high temperatures, extremely low snowpack, but actually our precipitation was uh, near normal. It was just mostly as rain instead of snow because of the higher temperatures. And these are conditions and the kinds of summers that we're expecting to be more frequent in the future with climate change. And with increased area burn, we're expecting more reburns or wildfires to collide. So you're all probably quite familiar with these burn footprints. Um, It includes the 1987 Silver Fire, they're in the yellowish, which is 100,000 acres, 2002 Biscuit Fire, which is 500,000 acres, and then the 2017 Checo Bar Fire. And so there's that region in the middle that has burned three times since 1987. So in the future, excuse me, I have one more drink. With increasing air temperatures, uh, decreasing summer rain, earlier snowmelt we're expecting to have drier fuels and forests. And only just a, set, a couple of weeks of high temperatures and low rainfalls are really enough to dry out the fuels and cause extreme fire hazard. So looking into, into the future, um, we can look at a couple different types of models that project future area burned. And so this is from a type of model that's a statistical model, so it looks at the historical relationship between climate and fire and then projects that into the future. And it says for about a one degree uh, Celsius increase in warming, you know, we can expect in this region probably about a 300 to 400% increase in annual area burnt. Or probably two to two to three times higher. There are other types of models um, more process based models that can look at they look at changes in climate and also model changes in vegetation over time and then can look at how fire changes. And so here um, in the on the left, we have mid century and on the right end of the century. And the places in red are where there is agreement in among a lot of different future climate scenarios where they'll be uh, increases in area burned, And you can see there are quite a few of those in southwest Oregon. <clears throat> and then there was also a recent <coughs> study <coughs> looking at the uh, suitability for very large forest fires. And so these areas in red are where uh, we're expecting and uh, compared to current here on the left, and end of century on the right, where there'll be suitability for very large fires. And you can see there's quite an increase in those as well. And it's not just the change in kind of the average uh, wildfire frequency and area burn that is going to be most important for our ecosystems, but actually the extremes. So you can have an, an extreme event that currently occurs maybe once in every 40 years. But you shift that standard deviation over one and a one in 40 year event becomes a one in six year event. And that's what could really, really cause some ecosystem change in the future. It's all about that tail. Another thing to note is that it's not just going to be changes in vegetation or changes in fire, but there are other uh, other disturbances that will be interacting with changing fire regimes and and vegetation, including insects, uh, invasive species and pathogens. And it's these potential interactions that could lead to some surprises in the future. And actually, over the last 30 years, uh, bark beetle has been the primary agent of mortality in forests of the western U.S. Um, It's more than than that of wildfire. And you can see that as uh, drought intensity increases, insect performance and tree damage tends to increase. And so, when you have more drought-stressed trees, they're more susceptible to insects. And we had a great example, unfortunately, of that in California um, where we had over 102 million grout-stressed trees (coughs) killed by different insects, mainly the western pine beetle. And there have been some insect issues in Southwest Oregon um, over the last few years. This is an image from 2016 showing uh, Douglas fir mortality from the flat-headed fir borer. And this is especially apparent in 2016, and seems to be associated with drought impacts. So, what does this all mean for forests in Southwest Oregon and beyond? Well, for one, we could have more incidents of high severity reburns, and these may occur before forests can recover from the most recent fire. Um, this is a place as is actually in Southwest Washington in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. Um, It's an area that's burned three times since 2008 And in this case, there might be problems with forest regenerating, at least for a while. So we might have extended uh, dominance by shrubs and grasses. You know that with increased fuels on the landscape, with fire suppression, um, we've had some and the more larger fires. Um, we've had larger uh, patches of high severity fire, and this is from the, the Biscuit Fire. And this can happen with climate change too, where we have uh, where we have large amounts of fuels, uh, more area burned. We might get these larger patches of high severity fire, and there could be regeneration problems. Um, within those patches as well. And we know that seedlings are very sensitive to climate. They're not as tolerant of uh, extreme climate as mature trees are. So if we do get more area burned, and then we get a lot of drought and more extreme conditions right after those burns, uh, there could be slower regeneration or uh, maybe some regeneration failures in certain Um, locations that, um, where there are extreme conditions and not many seed sources. And this is an example from the Biscuit fire um, where the areas in red are those that were over 800 meters from a live tree source. And really after we get more than 400, even the orange locations are where we might expect there to be regeneration failures. And so again, this could result with more frequent fire, more more drought, uh, more extreme conditions. We might get changes in species composition and structure and and we're expecting that some places are going to transition to non-forest chaparral conditions. And again, there may be some interactions uh, among these disturbances, including drought, uh, insect outbreaks and fires that could could cause more changes or uh, result in some surprises in certain locations. So, a few summary take-home messages here. Um, the first is you can expect more fire in the future with climate change. Um, there's a potential for interaction among disturbances, and those are, are those disturbances are likely to drive the vegetation change more than just the slow compositional changes we expect uh, from climate alone. We expect there to be vegetation shifts, uh, especially at the elevation extremes, including our highest elevations, which are likely to shift to uh, lower elevation species composition, and then at the lowest elevations, um, where we expect less forest, more, more shrubland and grassland. And then finally, there is a potential for resilience in this region. There's such high uh, diversity, topographic heterogeneity and a lot of microclimate. And so there is a potential for species um, to be more buffered from climate changes and disturbance changes in certain locations.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Got a lot of great questions for you. And um, we'll circle back on some of that material. Um, again, want to remind folks that we have the Q&A box. If uh, anything, uh, if you have any needs, uh, please go to the Q&A box and ask a question. And um, Brodia will advance questions uh, to the panelists. Um, and we'll do a Q&A at the end. So our final presenter, our third doctor, is um, Dr. Bill Kuhn. Uh, Bill is the area ecologist for the U.S. Forest Service, Southwest Oregon area. Bill leads a small team of ecologists that support the Rogue River Siskiyou and Umpqua National Forests. His interests and expertise lie in the fields of vegetation and forest ecology, fire ecology, climate change adaptation, and restoration ecology. Bill is going to tell us how public land managers can begin using the data that matched what we just saw, um, to help prepare for these coming climate changes. Welcome Bill.
3: Welcome. Thank you, Joseph. I guess wild. Am I unmuted?
1: Yep, you're good.
3: Thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you all for joining tonight. It's my pleasure to be talking to you tonight about climate adaptation and strategies, tools, and actions that the U.S. Forest Service is taking here in Southwest Oregon. So jumping into what is climate adaptation, what are we doing? So there's just some, some common terms and some definitions we have. It depends on who you listen to, but one definition of climate adaptation is actions that help ecosystems accommodate change, introduced by Connie Millar and co-authors. A second definition introduced by Groves and co-authors, introduces people into that equation, so they have much more in-depth definition Ecosystem-based activities that use a range of opportunities for sustainable management, conservation, and restoration of ecosystems to provide those services, those ecosystem services such as wildlife, recreation, wood products, and clean water that enable people to adapt to the impacts of climate change. It aims to maintain and increase the resilience. And reduce the vulnerability of ecosystems and people in the face of the adverse effects of climate change. So they introduce people in the equation. So not just ecosystems, but it's people also also having to adapt. And a third definition, actions to maintain ecosystem integrity and processes and sustain biodiversity in the face of rapidly changing climate. So now that we have a definition of what that means, how do we adapt? What are some of the common strategies that we use, should be using to adapt to changing climate? Well, there's three general categories of, of strategies. One is resistance. We try to resist the change that's coming and we try to maintain the ecosystem and the processes in their current state. Um, that might be beneficial. You might want to take that if, um, if there's a really important species, uh, like a high elevation species like there's a northern spotted owl, is not a high elevation, but it's a very important species. Uh, the pica here, a high elevation species, and uh, white park pine, also a high elevation species that are likely to be lost in a warming climate. So, if we want to resist, we want to concentrate our actions on these species to protect them and make them persist in a changing climate. But as you can think, that that's only gonna go so far. So resistance is more of a short-term strategy and probably will not have long-term success. So that leads us to resilience. Second strategy is to make our ecosystems more resilient by changing their structure, changing how they re- react to um, changing conditions. So that would be things like doing forest thinning to try to mimic fires. We, have an, we know we have an overabundance of young dense forests. Fitting them has lots of benefits um, to make more more resilient to changing fire and changing fire regimes. And then we have the third strategy, which is transition, which we actually, we accept that change is going to ha- happen, that the species are going to shift. So in this case, it's kind of like the actors will be changing, but the play itself goes on. So helping things to transition um, across the landscape with different species of Different mix of species um, and transitioning through disturbance such as fire. And in that case, we might have more Oregon oak. You know, we have some Oregon oak now, so it's likely to be likely to have more of it. And we can actually facilitate the expansion of Oregon oak woodlands in our public lands um, because they're going to be more tolerant to warmer climate and more fire. And we have some principles of climate adaptation. These are introduced by Peter Kareeva and co-authors, if you know the name Peter Kareeva, but these are more um, geared towards conservation on truly protected lands, um, but they really apply to all public lands. So some of the principles that they introduced are to protect key ecosystem features that, are, that form the underpinnings of a system such as complex old growth forests and important corridors. There we have an old growth forest. We, Don't have a whole lot of those left in Southwest Oregon, but we know where they are, we want to protect them because they are actually more resilient to changing climate and changing fire regimes. We want to also reduce those other stressors um, that can erode or degrade the resilience of species and systems such as invasive species, pollution, and changes in wildfire regimes. Here we have an example of Scotch broom that's not huge, hugely prevalent in, in Southwest Oregon, but it is a problem amongst others. You want to increase the representation of different genotype species and communities on protection. That is, we want to increase the, the heterogeneity. So we don't want a homogenous forest. Increasing the heter- heterogeneity is going to increase the likelihood that some of these species and these communities will survive. So we also manage, we want to increase and uh, favor those species that are going to do well in a future, those heat and drought tolerant species. Such as ponderosa pine, as an example. And then, in terms of conservation, uh, we want to increase the number of replicate units, what they call, of each type of ecosystem or species. That just means we want redundancy. We want—we don't want to just have a system or a population only in one location. Because if it gets wiped out by a high severity fire, we've lost it all. We want to have redundancy across the landscape. And luckily, we have. Lots of that in Southwest Oregon, lots of variability. And we want to restore ecosystems that have been compromised or lost, uh, that will happen potentially after fire. Uh, We know from lots of evidence that we've lost a lot of chaparral and grassland here in the picture in the background. So using fire as opportunity, we can, as Jessica said, kind of redirect the landscape to transition into these uh, vegetation types that are gonna be more resilient to changing climate. We want to identify and use the areas that are refuges from climate change. i will talk more about that later. And we potentially want to relocate organisms to appropriate habitats as those conditions change using strategies such as assisted migration potentially or using appropriate seed zones to bring in young plants that are adapted to the changing conditions. So what does it mean by, so usually the Forest Service is mostly using strategies of climate resilience. So what, what is that? So what does we mean by climate resilience? So traditionally, the definition of resilience means the capacity of a system to maintain the same general structure, composition, and feedback processes following disturbances or other shocks. And in social systems, it's the ability to bounce back after disturbance. So its ability to recover to its previous state. Well, if you think about that, is that really possible? So some smart people. These people published a great article in 2019 thinking, well, can we really have resilience to maintain social ecological systems in a static or historical state in conditions that are no longer sustainable as conditions are changing, right? It's a moving target. So they have a revised definition of what we really should be thinking about in terms of resilience. So they have several definitions. So basic resilience to define as Allowing or assisting natural force successional pathways and post-fire recovery. So that's allowing things to change because they know they need to change. And the next two are human-based or adaptive resilience. So these are social systems adapting to new or dynamic conditions by changing fundamental characteristics of that system. Such as through changing your zoning or planning to accommodate these changes. And finally, transformative resilience again, creation of fundamentally new systems requiring a profound shift in a relationship with fire when that embraces, that and rapidly change the role of fire in social ecological systems. And that resilience, we accept that, that fire is gonna change, it's gonna drive transitions in our, in our vegetation types. And it's important that we monitor what we're doing. So when we're actually implementing these climate change adaptation practices in our lands, we need to monitor what we're doing. We need to establish what the objectives are for that um, restoration goal, we need to try different strategies we only we don't want to apply only one strategy because if it fails then we put all of our eggs in one basket so we want to try different strategies different places we're going to define what success looks like so what are the thresholds for changing um at your styles uh, what is your success what are your criteria you want to develop indicators and metrics of how you're going to measure success and you want to adaptively manage so you need to collect data and and determine how things are changing. And if the outcomes are what you want, then you need to adjust. So some of the information models that we have at our disposal that we are currently using to apply actions to make our landscapes more climate resilient. One is this one developed by some scientists in the Nature Conservancy, what they call nature stage. So if we are to... um, protect landscapes that are resilient to changing climate, uh, we want to find those locations what are, that are very diverse geophysically. That is, they have a diversity of parent material, material of geology, that have lots of topographic diversity, that have a lot, lot of climatic diversity, and that also have lots of landscape permeability. And landscape permeability is Areas where organisms are free to move about without any, any man-made barriers to get in their way. So we have all of those. We have a lot of those in southwest Oregon. We have lots of topographic variability, lots of geophysical variability, lots of climate variability. But we do have a fair amount of man-made um, barriers in the way. So this shows you in the blue those areas that are likely to be more climate resilient in the future. And areas in brown likely be less climate resilient. So, we can use this as a guide to, to prioritize where we do our restoration to make our systems more climate resilient. Another tool we have at our disposal, developed by Dave Theobald and others, um, is what they call the Chile model. It is the continuous heat and insulation load index. So, what this does is it's calculating the solar radiation and heat load across the landscape based on the slope aspect and latitude, and it also calculates the effects of sun exposure and topographic shading on evapotranspiration. Evapotranspiration is the loss of water through leaves as plants are growing. So in this image, it's showing this in the darker red colors, those areas on the landscape that are anticipated to be the hotter and drier microsites we might want to tailor our climate adaptation strategies to do more thinning there to prepare for a hotter, drier climate versus those areas in the bluer colors that are anticipated to be cooler and wetter and those places where we might want to establish climate refugia and have different, different climate adaptation strategies. Another tool, we have several tools at our disposal. One is uh, modeling the, de- the deficits of water that are expected to come. So I'm introducing a term called climatic water de- deficit. That is that is basically the unmet demand of water in our systems during the summertime. Because as as Ellen said, we, we, we're in a Mediterranean system where we have lots of rain in the wintertime, very little rain in the summertime, but the plants need water in the summertime to, to grow. And when they don't have that water in the summertime they need to grow, there is a deficit there. And so they have to slow down, shut down, reduce their growth rate. So there's that deficit. So that deficit is is basically an index of how dry the conditions are for vegetation, for forests, and how stressed they're likely to be. And we know from modeling, here's one model developed for California that slops a little bit into Southwest Oregon that shows us how we expect that deficit to increase. So the larger the number here, the greater the increase in the deficit and the drier the conditions will be in the future. So here is um, there projections out to the end of this century under the kind of the worst, the best case scenario, the RCP 4.5 that shows that the percent difference in that deficit percent increase tends to be moderate by the end of the century under the best case scenario. So most places getting five to 15% drier by the end of the century and that contrasts with the worst case scenario, the RCP 8.5, where the model predicts that that deficit those drying conditions will increase them dramatically by the end of the century, with with now most of the area model in southwest Oregon experiencing a 10 to 40 percent increase in that deficit. So we know, but as, as you can see on the map, it's not all equivalent. Some areas are going to be more impacted than others. So we can use this as a tool to help us prioritize where we might want to do different different actions. We also have at our disposal some some other types of modeling that can help us determine what the appropriate vegetation types should be in our landscape based on changing climate. This is an example from a modeling effort by several scientists um, across the klamath siskiyou region that included northwest California and southwest Oregon. I'm showing you just the southwest Oregon portion of their analysis using what's called the Landis 2. it's It's a process model that it incorporates processes of disturbance and and growth and death of vegetation and it models broad vegetation types and here it's showing you in broad vegetation types what the current vegetation is and it does a pretty good job of telling you what the vegetation actually is with the light blues being the high elevation um, mixed conifer the, the darker greens being the kind of climate mixed conifer uh, uh Douglas fir. So then we take that out to the end of the century under kind of a wet hot scenario under the RCP 8.5, and we see that things shift, we pretty much entirely lose our high elevation species and we get more chaparral. So to summarize here that by the end of the century, we're expected to have more chaparral and shrub, which would, you would expect chaparral and shrub goes from about 10% of our lands, this landscape here to about 15%. If conifer stays the same, but high elevation conifer, we almost lose entirely. And that's to be expected. So we can use this kind of as a guide to know what's coming to help guide our actions. So yeah, as, as climate changes, you're gonna have an increase in climatic water deficit. You're, as Jessica said, you're gonna have a reduction in post-fire regeneration of conifers and other species. And you're gonna have transitions to other spe- other communities gonna be more adapted to climate and fire such as shrubs and grasslands. So what are the other, some of the things more in more in depth and some of the things that the River is doing to manage for climate resilience and transformation? Well, pre-fire we're doing some thinning in appropriate locations um, to thin out the forest. We know we have an overabundance of young, very dense forests, and we want to save and promote complex late forest, late seral forests, because we know they're more fire and climate resilient. We want to favor drought tolerant species, we want to favor uh, fire tolerant species because we're going to get more fire. We want to st- restore structural diversity. So we can, again, doing some thinning treatments and dry forest locations and appropriate locations will be beneficial and it has other benefits. You know, this is great research that found that as you do thinning and you reduce the basal area in younger dense stands, you actually increase the light environment the understory, and you get uh, a lot more cover of woody and herbaceous species in the understory that are also that also happen to be heat tolerant, fire tolerant, and drought tolerant, and also are very important to wildlife. So it has, thinning has some secondary benefits for um, for climate adaptation, for wildlife, and for species diversity. Then post-fire, after fire, we can use appropriate seed zones for planting if we need to be replanting. We can plant at lower densities. We don't need to be at higher densities necessarily. And then we can cluster our density planting in those areas that are cooler and wetter. And of course, plant drought-tolerant species, which we're currently doing. Then there's a map of the seed zones by species that we can use those as a guide to help us.
1: Hey, Bill, I'm just going to... Give you a couple minute warning here. Very okay. Close.
3: Yeah. I will. Yeah. So again, we have we have great research that tells us that uh, reducing tree density has lots of benefits. So here it's, we show that um, in during drought years, the number of trees killed increases as the density in trees increases. Again, so reducing density will have the benefit of of increasing or decreasing mortality. More research that shows the same. When it comes to fire, you yeah, have just a couple more slides. Um, in those locations where we want to reduce, we, w- we have some high value resources and we want to protect those and we want to reduce the chances of higher severity fire, we know what we need to do. We know that combination of thinning pers- followed by prescribed fire has the best chances of lowering the overall severity of fires when they happen. So we have that? Other researchers have found the same, that untreated units here in uncolored will have a higher proportion of survivorship post-fire than untreated. So you know that thinning has multiple benefits to increase survivorship. But here's another example of what's not always that simple. Sometimes you have the opposite effects. So we just have to be careful. And finally, yeah, we want to identify and protect those, for those climate refugia. So the refugia, climate refugia, there's areas on the landscape that will escape the adverse conditions. Are areas that will remain relatively cool and wet. So this is where cold air pools. Uh, interesting research from Yosemite that shows that, or sorry, from the Sierra Nevada that shows that wildlife, the building's ground squirrel is present in those locations that are relatively cooler and wetter. It's found those climate refugia and that's where it's persisting. And also, it turns out that the climate refugia are probably also coincident with fire refugia. It's interesting research from Cape Wilkin in Yosemite National Park that shows that those places that are climate refugia tend to burn at much lower severity than would be expected uh, versus other places. So, so they're also coincident. And again, if we're going to protect those climate refugia, we show that. In blue here, those those closed canopy forests, the older growth can, closed canopy forests tend to have a, a much higher percentage of low severity fire when a fire impacts it. So we want to protect those locations. So, finally, last slide, we want to reduce the other stressors. As I said, when, we're, when we do this, we're controlling invasive species. Here's an example of cheatgrass, which is not a huge problem here in southwest Oregon, but as things shift to more grassland and sharper we could have more invasion of cheatgrass and cheesegrass is known to adversely affect fire regimes in a bad way. So we want to prevent that. We want to, you know, we want to eradicate species such as the Japanese knotweed here that are stressing our other plants and we want to make our landscape more resistant to diseases. Here's an example of white pine blister rust. So we have great people that are developing resistant strains of species. We can plant out when we need to resistant strains of white pines in our forest to make them more resistant to diseases.
1: Great. That is this, thank you. Thank you so much, Bill, and and all our panelists. Maybe you could all just put your screens back on and if you stop screen share, Bill, we can have a few questions for folks. Um, We've got a lot in the queue here and um, I'll try to spread the love Um, And notice uh, if you're on mute or not, as I ask you this question. So I'll start with you, Alan, back to the top. Um, So climate smart principles. Um, What are some examples of strategies applied to a given site or ecosystem that might anticipate the tree viability or the possible for a relic population existing? Of existing species, can you can you speak to some examples of those climate smart principles at all? Sorry, could you
2: could you repeat the question? The-
1: so, what are some examples of the strategies applied to a given site? Um, do you have an example of, of climate smart practices at all, or, or uh, even if it's perhaps theoretical?
2: Well, I th- I think um, that the key idea between in climate smart is to try and think of all the possibilities that might be applied to a particular location in terms of uh, helping it survive climate change uh, and maintain its uh, its function and structure. So uh, I I can imagine one of the strategies that might be applied the assisted migration of genotypes from areas that are drier uh, than than we are currently, for example. maybe different species so What So have to be is not locked into the idea that uh, a different composition of a forest, which was there in 1900, 1950, is what has to be there in 2050. It's going to be a different mix of species, essentially performing the essential functions of that forest.
1: Right. Thank you. Okay. Um, Maybe skipping around here. So I have one for you, Bill. Um, so, you know, commercial thinning, I don't know, you know, if there's a lot of questions about what is thinning in here. And so commercial thinning often results in a lot of flammable slash piles, compaction of soil, the introduction of roads. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, how that uh, relates to the landscape permeability that you talked about the, the importance of this region from a climate refugia standpoint and how, um, you know, the conditions of thinning might actually, you know, cause some pro- unintended consequences.
3: Yeah, so that's definitely a problem. When we do some commercial thinning or any kind of thinning, we try to minimize uh, disturbance as much as possible, you know, we're using a logging system to try to minimize disturbance to the soils. Um, and we have a soil scientist that'll, that'll examine the area and make sure that the appropriate logging system is being used so we minimize soil disturbance. Um, yeah, there definitely is a lot of slash produce but we want to get rid of that slash because we know if you leave that slash and a wildlife fire comes through it's going to burn at much higher severity so that slash is removed it's pile burned and or is is underburned after the thing operation to make sure we get rid of that service fuel okay um, so yeah we're, we we do the best we can to minimize you know new road construction as well and we know that roads can be corridors or invasive species so we try to minimize that
1: A question for you, Jessica, Um, and we were were talking about this before we actually went live on this. Um, Someone wondered, you know, the Northwest forest plan that governs all these national forests in the Northwest is up for a revision and we're wondering how climate smart science might be incorporated into that effort.
0: Yeah. There was just a synthesis done through the Forest Service Pacific Northwest Research Station, um, and it was to inform the revision of the Northwest Forest Plan. And there was a chapter on uh, climate change in that in that synthesis. So that was uh, led by Matt Riley. Uh, if you go to a site called TreeSearch, you can um, look that up and, and see the whole science synthesis that's available. So they are thinking about Climate change, what it's going to do to fire and disturbance, and,
1: and how that might affect um, revision of the Northwest Forest Plan. Great, and uh, you know, yeah, I think either for you, Bill, or Jessica, it seems like you know, question a little bit more about this region, the climate of siskiyou and why it, you know, it's been a climate refuge refuge in the past, perhaps, and different climate events. Um, and you talked a little bit about this, but maybe just uh, anything. More you want to say about why that is? You know, what 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 is it that that lends this region to that um, kind of uh, you know the biodiversity and the, and the resilience to to climate change? Um, topo climate diversity. I think you talked about Bill.
3: Yeah, I so you, maybe I'll,
1: you can both you can both tackle that.
3: Yeah, I'll go first. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people have written about this, um, Whitaker being one, but several authors you know speculating or knowing why. This area is so diverse and why in the past it's acted as climate refugia. Um, yeah, it has lots of topographic diversity, has little, my, lots of little microsites sites where, where species can hang out when conditions change and then they can expand when conditions go back to what they were. Um, the climate is kind of at the intersection of a lot of larger ecoregions, so you will have a lot of mixing here. So as conditions change, some species move in, some species exit, but it's a nice kind of mixing area. Um, so the end result is, yeah, you have, you know, kind of a high diversity and an area where species can hang out when conditions aren't good.
1: That's great. Maybe just a few more minutes here. I know we're we're over time, but um, a lot of people are still here. So, um, and Jessica, I don't know if you want to tackle that. There was one about um, like habitat connectivity too, and if that's important, you know, in, in the future climate or um, I don't know what you found Absolutely. in your vulnerability assessment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, plant and animal species, if, if species are going to be able to, um, they need to have that connectivity to be able to respond to changing the climate so that they can shift their distributions. And where we have um, disconnects in that connectivity, then that could be a problem for some populations and, and species in the future.
1: Great. Well, um, maybe just one more, you know, Alan, just to, again, spread the love. Um, is there, uh, I had one here. It's like, should we expect the Rogue Valley to become Sacramento? Is that the, the climate that we're headed for?
2: Well, the, uh, the, the, some, some analyses have been done, which have suggested what the climate in the Rogue Valley is likely to be like by 2050 and 2100. The 2050 summer climate here is likely to be similar to what it's like currently in Reading. And when we go to the end of the century, the expectation is more like, um, Delano, um down uh, near Bakersfield.
1: Okay. Not, not, sure, so I, not, not sure if I I want to go there or want to live there. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, all right, and then maybe just one last question. Uh, you know, we got a lot of stuff about the, the thinning and the roads and stuff like that, and you know how that can have impacts. Um, you know, especially roads that 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 are vectors for noxious weeds, but also for um, for fire starts, you know, and, uh, you know, how that how that plays into, you know, what kinds of management we want to see here. I don't know, Bill, if you want to tackle that one. Um, yeah, no you doubt
3: know. That, that roads can be vectors of invasive species and they can be places where people inadvertently or deliberately start fires. But still, you know, in any given year within the forest, most of our starts are from lightning. Um, generally, our big fires are started from lightning. Um, so we, we we have a system of roads that are maintained in part to assist with effective, safe, quick fire suppression because you know the forest has a has a policy of fire suppression, hundred percent fire suppression. So those those roads can act as fire breaks and assist in suppression of fire. So, but yeah, we realize that there, we're potentially introducing non-native species, but we have teams of botanists out in the summer and after fires looking for those species eradicating them doing their best to keep them out of the forest.
1: Great. Well, um, I think we're at quarter after, so we're probably gonna call this one a wrap, unless anyone has anything else to say. Um, I'll hand it over to Alexi for a few final words. Um, You wanna turn on your video, Alexi? And... Alexi is not there. So I I don't know what happened to Alexi. I will, I will then end this webinar. (laughs) Thanks again for everyone of your questions and thanks to our panelists. I'm in closing a reminder that we'll send out a follow up email that contains all the resources that were covered, including um, the PowerPoints in this discussion. And you can also watch um, this on a link. And we'll also send out a survey to get any feedback from y'all. So um, and you know you can find all this information on KS Wild's website, kswild.org. And on our website, you'll also find out more in- information and registration for the final two webinars in the series. So join us next Wednesday, May 20th, for our third webinar called The First Best Stewards, Aboriginal Fire in the Klamath Siskiyous. And um, with that, we'll give a big thanks to our panelists and everyone for joining us tonight. We hope you all enjoyed it and please fill out your feedback form in your email. Take care.